Mets Chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi, and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters. With plenty of room indoors or outside on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the set of the pitch. Swinging a high fly ball to deep right center field. Robles going back, way back, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. A long Three-run home run for Jorge Alfaro to deep right center field. And not a good start here for Patrick Corbin as the Marlins have played it for the first. They lead it four to nothing. Corbin sets now. 2-2 pitch, breaking ball, sky to the air to deep left field. Hernandez going back, way back, looking up, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. That one bangs off an advertising billboard over the Nationals. Bullpen and down into the pen. A two-run homer for Miguel Rojas, his seventh of the year. And here in the bottom of the second inning, still with only one out, it's Miami 6 and Washington nothing. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, August 27, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, we could talk about the ridiculous scheduling aspect of what has happened to the Nats Thursday night into Friday, a road game on a Thursday night going into a series on the road beginning Friday evening. You almost never see that, yet you have that here with the Nationals. We could talk about a mammoth home run from Juan Soto on Thursday night. That was fun to see. We could talk about a variety of things, but nothing is going to matter more than what happened on the mound from a Nationals perspective on Thursday night. Patrick Corbin, off one of his best outings of the season, got shellacked by one of the worst lineups in baseball, and it's impossible to ignore what ended up going down the Nationals lose the game 7-5 at the Miami Marlins to lose the series two games to one. But what matters, and this is what we're focusing on these days, what truly matters is that Patrick Corbin remains a mess. Mark, we thought the glitch had perhaps been fixed, and instead Milton is still getting paid and Patrick Corbin is still giving up bombs. Yeah, and his office is shrinking in size. keep moving the desk further and further back, but he's still there. Look, I, this was right back where we started, and that's not good. I'll admit, going into this one, I thought this was about as favorable a situation as he was going to get. Coming off a really good start, 
against the Brewers where he started using the fastball a lot more, facing a Marlins lineup that, like you said, does not hit for power, and in their ballpark where it's even harder to hit for power. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, he's not going to get beat by the long ball tonight. You know, maybe he, he may not be as sharp, but he can probably get away with it. Maybe he'll give up some long fly balls, but that ballpark will contain it. And then what happens? <laughs> First inning, three-run homer. Second inning, two-run homer. And after he gets through the third, that's it, and he's done, and that's it. And it's just, it's so disheartening. It's so frustrating. I know Patrick himself is frustrated by it all because, uh, you know, he's a competitor and he knows he's better than this. But, like, my God, what more can he do? What more can we say about this? It's 31 home runs allowed this year, and that ties the club record for a single season, and it's only game 126, and he's already there. It's just not a good situation, and I'm not sure anybody really knows what the answer is. He has had worse outings this season, but I feel like from an emotional perspective of he's coming off the great outing, he's facing this really bad lineup in this spacious ballpark. This is one of the worst nights he's had, and that's saying something because he's had some really bad nights, but... This is the kind of outing, given the predicament, that makes you feel like he's not going to get right. Like, this is the kind of outing that just makes you feel like, maybe this is who he is. Like, all along, I've tried to cling to this thing of, all right, 2019 Corbin is still there. He's got to be there. I and mean, we've seen enough decency from him this year to where you're like, all right, there is kind of still something there. It's just not consistently there. This kind of outing just makes you feel like he does not have it. And he didn't have it in this game. And it was sort of like how from the get-go, he didn't have it. This was not one of these games where he started off well and then unraveled. This was, he gave up four runs in the bottom of the first inning, two more runs in the bottom of the second inning, throws a perfect bottom of the third, gets pinch hit for, and that's it. He's done. It just felt like a game pitched by a guy who shot. And you say to yourself, he's not old enough to be shot, but he looks shot in terms of the results. This was a really bad night for him. Well, and you said it got started off bad. It was the, literally the first batter. So he didn't walk anyone in his last start. And what does he do tonight? He walks the leadoff hitter, Rojas. And then he walks another batter, Sanchez, later in the inning with two outs when he had a chance to get out of it all. And, you know, that ends up setting up the big blast later on by Alfaro. But, like, if you can't even throw strikes and go after these Marlins hitters, then what hope is there? So disheartening. Now, is he done? Is he shot? The one saving grace is here is that the velocity is not an issue. I mean, he's throwing 93, 94, 95. So that's not it. It seemed like really more than anything, he got beat with his slider in this game. And that was so surprising because, you know, last weekend he ditched the slider through 71% fastballs against a good Brewers lineup and had tons of success. So where did it go? Why'd that change? Was that game plan? Was that just didn't feel it for whatever reason? But, you know, when you're walking the leadoff hitter and your fastball command isn't there, now you're going to start going to the slider and left a couple over the plate, and this is what happens. But it's just, it's maddening. It's maddening because I get what you're saying, but I also feel like this guy's better than this. This is not a six ERA pitcher. This is not the worst pitcher in baseball. That can't be true. I just don't see how that's possible. But the numbers suggest that it is true, and this is who he is. This is Patrick Corbin's 25th start this season. This is not a season in which, you know, well, it's been weird for him because he's missed a lot of time or, you know, he dealt with this ailment and then that ailment and just tried to pitch through them. As far as we know, he's been healthy. He just hasn't been good. So Corbin on Thursday night, six runs in three innings. He only gave up four hits. The problem was that two of them were home runs. He issued the two walks. He threw just 36 strikes versus 22 balls 
on 58 pitches. So four runs in the bottom of the first, leadoff six-pitch walk of Miguel Rojas. Then Corbin gets two outs, and then we get a two-out steal of second base by Lewis Brinson. I actually want to talk about that at some point on the show. And then Corbin gives up a two-out six-pitch walk of Jesus Sanchez, a two-out RBI single by Brian Anderson, and a two-out three-run homer by Jorge Alfaro to right center field for a 4-0 Marlins lead. And that was a shot. That homer went and projected 417 feet for StatCast. Then two more runs in the bottom of the second. Leadoff first pitch single by Brian De La Cruz and a one-out two-run homer by Miguel Rojas to left field for a 6-0 Marlins lead. That homer going a projected 406 per StatCast. That homer coming despite Rojas at one point being down in the count one, two. This is a Marlins team that even with the two homers on Thursday night is slugging as a team on the year 377. We cannot emphasize this enough. It's not just what happened to Patrick Corbin on Thursday night. It is against whom this happened for Patrick Corbin. He got shellacked by one of the worst hitting teams in baseball. Corbin now, as Mark said, has given up 31 homers this year. That is a record for most homers allowed by a Nats pitcher, and we still have a ways to go in this season. He's allowing 2.05 home runs per nine innings. That's a career-worst mark, and he continues to have the worst ERA in the majors among qualified pitchers. The ERA now is up to 6.09, but the thing is, we know he's not going anywhere. He's not being removed from the rotation. Any notion of, well, maybe they'll put him in the bullpen. Not now. And I would think maybe even not next season, you know, he's got to figure this out. He's not going anywhere. And part of the problem is that even if they were in a position to to do something with him, and, and I think there's an argument you could make to say, hey, you know, shut him down or give him some time off or, or something, but they don't have any alternatives. I mean, they're putting Sean Nolan on the mound again Saturday in New York because they don't have a fifth starter right now. And nobody's really knocking down the door at AAA waiting to be called up. So- I agree. They have to just keep putting him out there, you know, because of the contract. Of course, he's going to be part of the mix next year. And that's why I think that everyone was hopeful after that last start to say, hey, if he could finish the season strong, then you go into the offseason feeling a little better about yourself. And maybe he can actually be something for them in 2022. And yeah, that can still be the case. But I mean, if you can't even string together two quality starts in a row, you know, not good. That's <laughs> it's not going to help anybody. I feel like in other years, if this was happening, he wouldn't be in the rotation anymore. But this year, and at this stage of the season, he has to be in the rotation because they have no other alternative. All right. I'm not kidding when I ask this. Does he have any options left? Would they ever consider sending him to the minors? Is that at all a possibility? Or is there like no chance that would ever happen? So I don't believe he does. But even if he did, every once in a while, there's a weird situation where a, a veteran will have options remaining. But you get to a certain point in your career and you have the right to turn it down if they did try to do it to you. And I would imagine that he has reached that point. But let me look this up as we're talking. Yeah, the options are, it says not available, which means not that he's out of them, but that he would have the right to like decline it if it ever came to that. So I don't think that's going to happen. And to be honest, I don't even know that that's worth it right now because what they're doing at the big league level is the equivalent of AAA, you know, or spring training. Like they're trying guys out. They're not just focused on wins and losses. So what is the harm in putting him out there, even if you're just trying to work on some things? I thought it was pretty telling that Davey pinch hit for him, and I agree with the decision. I mean, you have the bases loaded in the top of the fourth. You're trying to maybe get something going offensively. And regardless, like, do you really need to see any more of Corbin on this night? No. 
Now, that's not a great thing to have to burn up your bullpen in advance of a, a weekend series in New York, but I completely understood that move, and, and I don't fault him at all for making it when he did. And the Nationals are unable to have a series in which the starting pitcher in each game does well. It had not happened in forever. It still has not happened in forever. Fetty was very good in game one. Josiah Gray was very good in game two. But old Corby could not complete the sweep in that regard with another bad performance there in game three. Tough to watch. He's trying. I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like this is a case of a guy not working hard or anything like that. He's giving it what he's got. I still think, too, this is a real test of the Nationals themselves. While this starts with Corbin, this doesn't look good on them that they can't figure this out either. And at some point, I think there are some questions that need to be asked of what is going on here. Now, I know the Nats are working on this. Like, they're aware he's struggling. I I understand that. But Davey Martinez, Mike Rizzo, the Nats baseball op staff, Jim Hickey, the pitching coach, other people, they can't fix this somehow. They can't get through to him somehow. It's just, it's not a good look when a guy declines like this. This is a really drastic fall for someone who had no business falling like this. Especially when there doesn't appear to be an obvious physical reason for it. You know, sometimes you'll see, oh, so-and-so's velocity has dropped four or five miles an hour. Uh, He's just not the same pitcher anymore. And you say, okay, well, clearly, you know, he got burned up pitching so much all the way through October and he just hasn't been the same pitcher since. Well, the results, that's been the case for Corbin. But when you watch him pitch, you don't see that. There's no reason to to say, okay, you know, I know Zim brought up a couple weeks ago about the idea of he got abused in 2019, and maybe he did. I think a lot of people forget <laughs> he was, for lack of better words, abused in 2019 in the, in the playoff run. You know, he did things that he has never done before for us to win that World Series. I think people think that you just recover from that and come back the next year and everything's fine. Well, you come back the next year and they have the you know, spring training, and then you get shut down, and then you have to start up again. You know, I'm not making excuses for for Pat, but, you know, in the beginning of this year, the first 10 or 14 days, whatever it was, he was on the the COVID stuff. But where is the physical evidence of it at this point? I mean, if you watch him pitch, you have no reason to believe that. He's not fatigued. He's not, you know, always only good for three or four innings at a time. Like, Sometimes he's good for a while and then crumbles late. Sometimes, like in this one, he's awful from the get-go. Uh, and then he bounces back and he actually kind of finished strong and retired the last five batters he faced. I mean, he's giving up home runs. He's not commanding, but he looks physically fine. He's still throwing the ball hard. So I agree. This is a project for them as an organization. And if they cannot do something to get him back on track, it doesn't speak well of them as an organization and their ability to get the most out of their players. Yeah, that abuse thing, I still laugh when I see that. I get what Zim was saying, but October 2019 was almost two years ago. We had a shortened year last year. I mean, it's not like the guy was hit with a shovel repeatedly by the Nats, okay? He pitched a few extra innings in a postseason, did a great job, is forever a Nats hero because of that, and the fall has been precipitous. There's no doubt about that. Three and two the count. He comes set. The runner goes the pitch. Swag and a miss. He struck him out with a slider. And the side retired. Patrick Corbin around the hit batsman after one out of the inning. Strikeout of Bellinger and Freeze back to back to send this game to the ninth inning. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer 
at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers, is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit FredNats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Here's the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out. 99 on the fastball to the outside corner. Patrick Murphy has his first strikeout as a national as he blows away Alex Jackson with an electric fastball. Well, in terms of what mattered from this game, there are a few things to get to in terms of the retooling by the Nats. We did see the debut of Patrick Murphy in a Nationals uniform on Wednesday night. So, of course, Davey again has to lean heavily on his bullpen. We end up seeing four Nats relievers. Bullpen actually does a nice job. One run unearned in five innings on six strikeouts. Mason Thompson, an unearned run in two innings. Patrick Murphy makes his Nats debut. A scoreless bottom of the six with two strikeouts. Does give up a single and a walk, but the velocity from Patrick Murphy, upper 90s. I know velocity isn't everything, but that sure plays in today's Major League Baseball. Sam Clay, scoreless bottom of the seventh 
with two strikeouts. Ryan Harper, a perfect bottom of the ace. So some good stuff here from the bullpen. But what'd you think of Patrick Murphy? Good stuff. Very good stuff. And you can see why it's uh, so intriguing. I mean, you're throwing 98-99. And how about the one that it was up in the zone and Trace Barrera wasn't even sure that he caught it? Like he sort of looked <laughs> back to the backstop as if to say, did I miss that? No, wait, it's in my glove. There's some legit stuff there. And if I'm a hitter, I'm probably terrified of it. And the slider was pretty sharp too. Now the issue I could tell, and you could see why he hasn't quite hit it big yet in the big leagues is consistency from pitch to pitch. The command was a little bit all over the place, but not so bad that you'd say, okay, well, this is going to be a disaster. Like you can see that it's there. And if he can just hit the edges of the strike zone with it, he's going to have a lot of success. So I definitely, after one appearance, want to see more of Patrick Murphy. I'm intrigued enough to want to see more of this and, you know, maybe there'll be something from it. But that stuff, like you said, it will play if he can command it. We've dealt with that previously with Nationals relievers, right? Henry Rodriguez, anybody. But th- th- that's like a classic thing with a reliever. He's got the stuff, but he's also got this real flaw. And th- that's what relievers are, right? They are flawed pitchers. They-, they are second-class pitching citizens. That's why they are relievers and not starters. But you're right. There is something there. And if you can somehow get that channeled in the right direction and minimize the negatives, they might have a real weapon. That, that was a, a very shrewd move. I, you know, it was a no-risk thing, right? Claim a guy like that off waivers and see uh, what he can end up providing for you. So offensively for the Nationals, they did it again. It's amazing, Mark. The boys battling. I know we joke about this. This is every game they do this. Every game, the ninth inning is interesting. You know, from a a television standpoint, right? If you're a TV executive at Masson, you must love this because stay tuned. The ninth inning rally is coming. You know, don't uh, turn away from the game. And the Marlins were certainly co-conspirators in this game. Just like if you go back to that Milwaukee series, the Brewers were co-conspirators because these bullpens have like no clue as these games go on. But I give the Nats credit. They make these games interesting or at least semi-interesting. It feels like game in, game out. And I think this is where Davey Martinez does deserve credit because there are other teams that would be in this situation that you get in a game that you're down 6 nothing early and you fold in the tent and just let it play out. I mean, that would not be inexcusable for some players on some teams in this situation to do that. And they consistently show that they do not do that. They may not be playing great baseball. They may always be playing clean baseball, but they always play hard right down to the final out. And I think that is a reflection of their manager. It was their defining quality when they won the World Series. Obviously, a very different roster, very different talent than they have right now. But I think that has carried over and that he does instill that in them. They want to play hard for him and for each other. And I give them credit for that. They work good at bats. They force the other manager to make pitching changes in the ninth inning, even when you think maybe it's unnecessary. And they always give themselves a chance with the tying run at the plate. In this case, even the go-ahead run at the plate. It didn't work out in the end, but Riley Adams just missed that one. He just got under it and popped it up. I I was thinking there was maybe a shot at something big happening there and didn't quite happen. Here's the set. Now the pitch. Swung on, and the breaking ball hit in the air to shallow right center field. Long run, Sanchez coming in, and he makes the catch for the out to end the game. We laugh about it, and and maybe it seems like we're sugarcoating this or trying to find positives, but I, I give them credit for this. I think it is a legitimate trait that this organization has had now for a while, ever since Davey Martinez became manager. Well, what you don't see are give-up plate appearances, which you will see sometimes on bad teams. Like, guys are genuinely invested in their at-bats, which there's something to be said for that. Like, I think the whole thing of, like, a baseball team especially not giving up, I think that can be a little overstated because baseball is, like, the ultimate individual team sport. But 
guys are always into their plate appearances. You see that throughout these games, and I think the Nats do deserve credit for that. Now, the Nats score two runs in the top of the ninth. They lose 7-5, so the rally gets cut short. But among the things that happened to that top of the ninth inning, Juan Soto drawing a one-out five-pitch walk. That is walk number 100 on the season for Juan Soto, who by miles leads the majors in both walks and on base percentage. His on base percentage for the season is up to 444. He also in this game had another walk, a two-out seven-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. That was in the top of the first. And also for Soto in this game was a mammoth home run. And the pitch swung on. Belder by Soto. Deep right center field. Forget about it. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. This has to be one of the hardest hit homers of his career and one of the lengthiest homers of his career. A one-out, two-run shot to right center in the top of the fifth to cut the Nats deficit to 6-2. Per StatCast, the homer went a projected 433 feet and was the hardest hit homer of Soto's season. Exit velocity of 114.1 miles per hour. Like normally a home run, it's over 100 miles per hour, but I don't know, it's like 104, 105. I'm not sure what the average is, but 114.1 is sick. Now, Soto hasn't been getting many pitches to hit. This was just his third homer since July 27th, but that was some shot. We have seen some big blasts this season, right? Kyle Schwarber certainly provided more than a few. That was some shot by Juan Soto. And it was indeed the hardest hit home run of his career. Oh, it was. Yes. Now he's hit balls harder for singles, doubles, lineouts, things like that. But it was the hardest hit home run of his career. So you were right <laughs> to think in those terms. And the distance was fantastic at 433. The two walks were good. And I've got some numbers for you. Uh, partially, I don't have it completely computed here. But over the last two seasons now, Juan Soto has played 162 games, as it turns out. So I've got some combined stats for you. Ready for these? 34 homers, 106 RBI, 29 doubles, 141 walks to 100 and, uh, 104 strikeouts. Pretty good. And then going into the game, so these are the ones I don't have updated, 315 batting average, 456 on base, 558 slugging for a 1.014 OPS. And I know he's not great at this, but he does have 12 stolen bases also in that time. Put that all together in a 162-game package over two seasons, that is as good as it gets and even though we would say that in some ways it's been a little bit of a down season for him, particularly from a power standpoint, when you really look at what he is doing, it is still remarkable, and he's only 22 in doing it. Oh, and 123 runs scored in 162 games. That's remarkable. I think what's always interesting, too, is you look at not just what a guy's doing, but how does that compare to the rest of the league? Because, you know, standards change, and you have inflation and deflation in terms of offensive numbers, et cetera. So Juan Soto leads the majors in on-base percentage, 444. Number two is Bryce Harper at 414. He is 30 points better on the season than the next best guy in on-base percentage. That's spectacular when you can have that kind of a lead atop a leaderboard. So he's had a great season. I think everybody knows that by now, but it uh, doesn't mean we're not going to keep highlighting it. Uh, so really good job by Juan on Thursday night. Josh Bell had a good game on Thursday night, two for five with an RBI single and another single. Another plate appearance in which he does well when down 0-2. Bell in the top of the seventh, a two-out single despite having been down to the count at 1.02. He really has a penchant for doing that. That is not easy, and yet he's done it for so much of this season. Now, uh, speaking of the Nats lineup, Victor Robles, remember him? Uh, he was back in there on Thursday night. He was the Nats starting center fielder 
and number one batter. He went one for five. You know, things get off to such a wonderful start with victory. He has a leadoff single to get things going in the top of the first inning. And then he gets caught trying to steal second base. Now, that was a great throw by the Marlins catcher. But Robles is just eight for 14 now on stolen bases this season. So to add to like all the other things, right? He hasn't hit well, hasn't hit for power, has had bad at bats, doesn't hit balls hard. He also doesn't steal bases at a very good clip, eight of 14 on the season. That's why the problem here is like we can point to the defense as still being very good, but there's nothing else you can point to and say he's done that well this year. There just isn't. You know, there's been little spurts here and there where he's done some things, but base running continues to be an issue, not just stolen bases, but just base running in general has been a problem. Obviously at the plate, it's been a problem, nothing consistent. And I like you, I I thought, hey, here we go. First batter of the game, leadoff single. All right, we're going to see a new Victor Robles here and then boom, caught stealing. Now the runner going, the pitch is low, the throw by Alfaro, the tag by Diaz and Robles with a pop-up slide is out. And the rest of the night, did very little else at the plate. And in the ninth, you know, we talked about with the great rally and how they battled. He grounded out weakly to first base on the first pitch. You're leading off the ninth down, what was it, four runs at the time. Just work the count, Victor. Or if you're going to swing at the first pitch, you better hit it hard. And he didn't at all. And those are those things that we just keep pointing to. It's like, is he going to figure these out eventually? Or is this just who he is? It gets frustrating to a lot of people to see him repeat the same mistakes over and over You'd like to think at this stage, he's been in the big leagues for a while now, that he would have started to figure some of this out. We did again see Yadiel Hernandez in left field, so Lane Thomas did not start. He did come off the bench. So I was thinking about this, because it seems to me that Davey, a lot of the time, lets what happened in the previous game dictate his lineup for the following game. Lane Thomas did not have a hit in the previous game. Do you think that's why Victor was back in there? That that was just like kind of Davey's thing of, okay... I can depart from Lane for at least a game here because he didn't have a hit. Like I find that to be kind of a charming way to do your lineups. I also find that kind of be a uh, kind of a frightening way to do your lineup. Like <laughs> you, you should have a little more conviction in your guys and your principles than just well, what happened the last time? Let me try to duplicate that this time. But what'd you make of that? So I think you sort of have it, but I'm going to actually flip it the opposite way. Here's what I think: I think he planned to start Robles all along in this game. But if Thomas had had a big game the previous night, he doesn't want to bench him after a big game. I don't think it's that he's benching him after a bad game. I think it's, hey, if you keep going three for four and make all kinds of noise out there, I don't want to have to bench you for that. But I think he did intend, he kind of hinted at the other day that Robles would probably start this game. So I I think it was that, you know, it wasn't a reflection of Thomas having a bad game, but you keep having these big games as a manager, you're going to say, what, now you're going to bench him for that? No, you can't do that. My hunch is that that's what the rationale was, whether you agree with that or not. Yeah, I'm kind of like, you either believe in a guy or you don't, right? And especially with baseball, there are so many of these games. It's like, okay, if you think the guy's good, like if he really thinks Lane Thomas is better than Victor Robles, keep Lane Thomas in there. But like to do this thing of trying to chase the previous game's results, you know, it's like that saying, past performance is no guarantee of future success. Like that's not really how baseball works. But Davey's done this. To me, that's part of why Victor, the plug got pulled so quickly on him as a leadoff batter. It wasn't working. And David was like, all right, we got to try something else. It's like, well, if you really believe in him as your leadoff guy, give him more of an opportunity instead of just like saying, no, we're, we're going to go with something else. I don't know. I just I got kind of a kick out of that uh, from Davey there on Thursday night. Uh, Carter Keyboom had a couple of hits, a double, a single and a hit by pitch. Oh, I want to talk about a couple of scoring things in this game. So the Keyboom double. See, I, I think official scoring in baseball can be almost comical. So Carter Keyboom and that Nats one run six has a first pitch leadoff double. 
And a swing and a line drive right center field. Sierra shaded that way. Reaches up and it's over his glove and going to the fence. Keep him around first heading to second as Sierra retrieves the ball on the warning track. Thanks to the Marlins center fielder, Magnuri Sierra, who was in the game for Lewis Brinson, misjudging the baseball, allows the ball to go over his head. I mean, that's a play a center fielder should make. Keeboom gets credited with a double. Now, I mentioned Lewis Brinson getting hurt. Lewis Brinson got hurt on a play that resulted in an error on him. Fastball swung on, hit in the air to left center field. And coming on, the center fielder and left fielder, and Brinson and De La Cruz collide. They're both down, and so is the ball. Alcides Escobar, who is the king of dumpster diving, had another one of these games on Thursday night. Two singles, reaches base via error. It's amazing how this guy finds ways to get on base in like the ugliest ways. So in what ends up being a Nats two-run fifth, he reaches second base on a one-out fielding error, charged to Brinson, of Brinson colliding with the Marlins left fielder, Brian De La Cruz. If you watch the replay, De La Cruz's glove actually makes contact with the ball but they charged the error to Brinson. Mark, it just goes back to this thing of like, it seems so random sometimes with these errors and what is an error and what isn't an error. And it's just kind of like, eh, flip a coin. Is that an error? Okay, two guys collided. Eh, I don't know. Center fielder, he gets the error, even though he never touched the baseball. I just, I got a kick out of that on Thursday night. Yeah, I think the problem is there's a whole book on official scoring and like what the the rules are, what they have to abide by. And you'd be surprised how many things are explicitly stated in there. And it doesn't often allow for just common sense to take over. Sometimes they're sort of constrained by things. Like, for example, this didn't happen this game, but like you lose a ball in the sun, you can't charge an error on somebody for that. It's got to be a hit. Well, I've always thought that's kind of ridiculous because the pitcher shouldn't be to blame for that. He got a fly ball, you know, routine fly ball, and it should have been caught. But now it goes against the pitcher. So things like that, things like the line drive over his head, okay? I'm pretty sure it says if you don't, touch the ball, you can't give him an error on that. Even though like you can take a bad break on it and it is your fault for taking a bad route on it. But if you just kind of whiffed at it and went over your head or you misjudged it, it ends up going as a hit. So there are a lot of these like official rules for how to score those kind of plays. And I think at times I'd almost rather give the guy the ability to just use some common sense and say, okay, I know what I saw with my eyes. I know what that should count as. There also should be, I've been long an advocate for the team error. You know, something that it's not fair to charge it to one player, but clearly it's not fair to charge it to the pitcher either. So let's have an all-inclusive team error. Isn't in basketball, there's a team rebound, right? I wish there was something like that that is nobody individually is getting penalized for it, but you have to account for how it happened and maybe not necessarily give the hitter credit for it. So let's institute the team error in my mind. Yeah, you have uh, team turnovers in basketball as well. I I just, it's funny because I know some people are really into the official scoring of the game. And look, you should enjoy baseball however you want to enjoy it. But the more you really delve deep into errors, it's just the dumber they are. And these these scoring rules, I'm just like, who cares? It's not a reflection of what happened. So what does it matter how many errors you have or who got charged with the error? Is that a hit or an error? Like if you watch the games, you know what happened. And like that Carter Keeboom hit, I mean, it was a decently struck ball. But that's a play the center fielder should make. That's not a double. And yet it goes down as, you know, your basic double down the right field line. And like I said, the Brinson error, why is that on him? How do we know that that's on him? You know, it's also funny about that, too. It didn't look like the two of them communicated at all. Dela Cruz and Brinson, you got about 13 people in that ballpark and you're not communicating with your teammate like that in a spot like that. What are they doing? That to me was uh, preposterous. It was not good. No, that was not good. And um, yeah, at least from a distance, the environment inside 
Lone Depot Park, lowercase l, was pretty atrocious. I mean, even in the ninth inning, when they're one out away and the Nats are trying to rally, there was nothing coming across the audio. There was absolutely nothing. And I'll just say it's a good thing because I'm going to segue into I know a topic you want to get to. It's a good thing this was a night game because God forbid if that was a day game, how many people would have showed up for that one? Yeah. So explain this to me because I was wondering. The Nats, they have another road series, right? A three-game set at the Mets. This was a Thursday game. So many Thursday games throughout a season are day games or at least late afternoon games. You're playing at a team that notoriously does not draw. You can play indoors. So like weather isn't a concern. And yet this is a 7-10 start. Why? It doesn't make any sense to me why MLB would have allowed for that. Teams ask for it. And I think the way MLB seems to interpret this is they'll allow it if the flight is like within the same time zone, essentially. So because they're going to New York. Now, if they're going out west, they won't allow it. If you're crossing time zones, they won't allow it. But here's the problem. I even even looked this up this afternoon because I got nothing better to do. We think, oh, well, they're still on the East Coast, not that far. The flight from Miami to New York is almost three hours. That's not that close. It's like the equivalent of flying from D.C. to like Minneapolis. So if the Nats had, you know, a seven o'clock game at Nats Park on Thursday night, would you say that they should play a seven o'clock game in Minnesota on Friday night? No, you'd say that's too far. You got to play a day game. So it distance wise, it's like the same thing. But we tend to think, oh, well, it's all on the East Coast. So it's not that big a deal. No, I think it's something that should be addressed. I think you know, the players, all the things the players complain about, I think these are the kind of things they should voice their concerns about more, that it's really just owners trying to make more money by having more night games. It's really the only reason. There's no other reason for it. And at least in this case, how much more money you're making by playing a night game in Miami than you would have had in the afternoon because they don't draw anyway. So if I'm the players, I'm actually arguing over this kind of stuff more. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, especially with school out, I know schools are kicking back in a year for some people, but is the attendance really that impacted in the summer by day games? Because I, I know some people, they're not going to go out at night. You have young kids. You're not doing anything past 7 o'clock. So, I mean, I would even wonder about that. Now, look, these players travel in an extravagance that you and I can only dream of. So they'll be just fine, okay? Nobody has to lose sleep over this for the Nationals. No, they will lose sleep. <laughs> literally lose sleep. <laughs> I guess, yes, I guess in, literally you will, yeah. But uh, I just found that to be ridiculous. And the more baseball can do to have games during the day or late afternoon so people who go to bed early can stay up and watch these things, the better. Like, if you have an opportunity for a 4 o'clock start, that's good. And you didn't have that on this Thursday. I just just thought that was kind of odd. One other thing. I mentioned this earlier. You said the other day, and it's so true, the Nats who have been great at throwing out attempted base dealers have, like, just totally fallen off on that. And obviously, the sell-off has had a lot to do with that. But we saw another example of this. In that uh, four-run Marlins first inning, that Lewis Brinson steal, Tres Pereira makes a short throw that bounces by Alcides Escobar on that stolen base. That was a, a uh, hatchable throw by Barrera, but it obviously was not a great throw by Barrera. The running game operation right now for the Nationals in terms of defending the running game is not in a very good place. It's really bad. And Dave Jagger, I'm going to give credit to for putting this out before the game, and it even got worse as the game went on. They came into the game having allowed 12 straight stolen bases against them. Now it's 15 because there were three more in this game. The last time, you want to guess who the last Nats catcher to throw out a base runner was? A stolen base runner? Jonathan Solano. (laughs) Not quite. Rene Rivera, remember him? Against the Cubs on August 1st. I mean, that's a long time ago, and Rene Rivera has long since been forgotten around here. So before the trade deadline, when Jan Gomes was the man, 
behind the plate. They had thrown out 31.6% of base dealers, is all according to Dave Jagler. Since the trade, they've now only thrown out two of 19. So it's on the catchers, yes. It's also on the pitchers somewhat. Remember, there's a lot more younger pitchers maybe on the mound that aren't as good at this stuff. And the other thing that occurred to me watching this one, because you mentioned some catchable throws, you know, maybe Trey Turner and Josh Harrison were a lot better at this than Alcides Escobar and Luis Garcia. And maybe we don't often think of the infielder's role in this, but maybe they play a role in this as well, because not every throw is going to be right on the money. You do have to be able to scoop some at times, and maybe they are as responsible as the catchers and the pitchers for this dramatic shift in uh, not stopping the, the running game. Well, you know, who else was great at applying tags? And I know, you know, we're not supposed to say his name anymore, but Starling Castro actually did a really nice job yeah. multiple times this season uh, with that. So that they are missing. I think that's a good point. I think they are missing some of that uh, in that regard. By the way, you just made me think of something. Alex Avila is still on the injured list, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. He's still rehabbing. Are you allowed to park a guy in the I.L. like this for the rest of the season, which they, they pretty clearly are doing? I've seen him working out. He has been rehabbing and all that. I figured that they'd send him on a minor league rehab assignment here at some point because you would think he'd be ready to play in some games, and that would normally be the thing to do. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, Obviously, they're slow playing this as long as they can, but he is still officially with them. He's still officially on the IL. The the word from them on him was he was making progress from the calf strains, and then, remember, he ended up testing positive for COVID and had to be quarantined for 10 days or whatever it was, and so he kind of had to start all over again. And again, maybe they've Use that to their advantage and tried to slow play this as long as they could. But um, Alex Avila, still with the team, still rehabbing, not on the active roster yet. Man, whose uh, injury recovery took longer, Alex Smith or Alex Avila? I mean, this is unbelievable what's going on with Avila. These, these bilateral calf strains, man, the Nats are milking this for all they can. I guess I don't blame them, but that's something else. I, you forget he's still on the team. He is. He's still with them, but uh, we haven't seen him in quite some time. Well, you tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We got an email from Keith Stoneman, whose voice memo recently played. He wrote, so after playing my memory, I got pinged on Facebook Messenger by someone in Lincoln who heard it. I had no idea there was another Nats fan in Lincoln. I told him we'd have to get together to take in a game and visit sometime. The power of Nats Chat bringing together Nats fans. How about that? We're playing matchmaker, at least in terms of Nationals fans getting together to watch the Nats. That's pretty cool. I love it. And as we've said from the beginning, because we we see the metrics, we see where people are uh, downloading from. They are everywhere. Nats fans are literally everywhere around the globe. We've heard from so many of you from so many different places. And if just by spotlighting some of this and giving you the opportunity to share with us where you come from, you're able to meet up with somebody else who lives nearby that you didn't know about, I think that's just fantastic. I love it. Uh, I hope they do get a chance to get together, watch a game together. Hopefully a game's a little more interesting than uh, this one was and enjoy meeting a, a fellow Nats fan in Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. Email from Stan. He is not happy about Patrick Corbin. <laughs> Stan writes, Hickey is a joke. And Corbin needs to be sent down for a while. Maybe he will remember what it's like. He, he wants the Nats to punish Patrick. Uh, I brought it up earlier. I don't think that's going to happen. But the fact that we even entertain that thought tells you all you need to know about the nightmare that his season has become. Well, keep the feedback coming. We have enjoyed listening to your voice memos, your memories, your tales of October 2019. 
You can record yourself into your smartphone and then email the file to us at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hello, Nats Chat Podcast. Uh, my name is Bob. I live in Prince William County and... One thing that I remember from the 2019 World Series was actually the day after the World Series. Uh, The day after the World Series was Halloween. And I remember uh, sitting on my porch, passing out candy to all the trick-or-treaters and noticing that uh, all the dads were wearing their Nats gear and all the little boys were Avengers. They were all superheroes, but uh, all the dads were all dressed up in Nats gear. And I pointed out to my wife, and then she said, look in the mirror, and uh, realized that, yeah, I too was wearing my Strasbourg jersey, and uh, my boys were also dressed as superheroes. So love the podcast. Keep them coming. Thanks, guys. Now the pitch. Fastball hit on the ground off the glove of Strasbourg. Cabrera charges in. Bearhands throws the first. He's out. He's out. One away here in the bottom of the ninth inning. What a reaction by Cabrera to come in barehanded with the great hands and footwork to throw him out. That was going to be a really easy play if Strasbourg didn't touch the ball. That made it a far more difficult play, having to redirect. And the key was the barehand pickup. And once he did, he was fine. Chip Hale is coming out. He's taking the ball. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.